rhetorical listeners, and welcome into another episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. This week's episode of the podcast is a part of our Emerging Scholars series and features a discussion with Jesse Rice Evans. More with Jesse later. It's March, which means it is Four Seas Month. Hopefully, you have your travel arrangements for Four Seas, ATTW, Taika, etc., and are looking forward to spending time in Milwaukee. Yet, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that Milwaukee has, unfortunately, been in the news recently due to another mass shooting, this time at a beer facility. Since our conferences are coming up just about a month after this tragedy, it's obviously still going to be on the minds of the people there in Milwaukee, so I think it should be on our minds too. Obviously, we are visitors to their city, so I hope that while we are there, we show the local residents support and lift them up and lift their great city up and show a bit of grace and humility to be there doing a job that is work, but for most of us, is a lot of fun too. I want to direct your attention to a couple of resources you might check out as you plan your conference experience. The first resource, put together by Dr. Temptatious McCoy, is a list of panels from black folks and people of color who are going to be presenting at 4Cs. This excellent and smart resource is an accessible Google spreadsheet and can be found at ATTW and 4Cs Black Presentations Twitter coverage. The next resource is the ATTW 4Cs Roommate Database. If you're still looking for a roommate, roommate or to cut costs, you can find some this resource also accessible as a Google spreadsheet called Roommate Database ATTW 4Cs 2020. So I mentioned that this episode is a part of our Emerging Scholars series. This unique series of podcast episodes is an inclusive space specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. As I mentioned earlier, this week's episode of the podcast is a part of that series and features a discussion with Jesse Rice Evans. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholars series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. For scholars and practitioners, the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series offers the opportunity to gauge the future of rhetoric, writing studies, and tech comp by learning more about the research of graduate students and less seasoned scholars. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Jesse Rice Evans, she, her, hers, is a neuroqueer femme poet and rhetorician originally from North Carolina, but now based in New York City on unceded Lenape territory. I think it's one of a couple of things. Um, there's a lot of discomfort around um, abled people, abled or able-bodied people facing anything that might remind them of the fallibility of the body or like their own mortality. That's extremely scary for people to deal with and having to interact with somebody, especially somebody who's like visibly or like physically disabled is really scary to them. 
Read her work, Invisible Pedagogy, Wussy, 521, among many others, and in her first collection of poetry, The Uninhabitable, from Sibling, Sibling Rivalry Press, which came out in 2019. Currently, she works as a digital pedagogy fellow at the Open Lab at City Tech and with the CUNY Humanities Alliance as a web development and documentation fellow. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jesse Rice Evans. Jesse, you're doing your PhD in English, Composition and Rhetoric at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Uh, how long have you been there in that program? So um, this semester is the first semester of my third year at the Graduate Center. Um, I've been at CUNY for, uh, gosh, I guess it must be five years now. I did my master's at uh, another campus before starting my PhD at the Graduate Center. Um, And I've been teaching there um, at different CUNY campuses for several years as well. So pretty much since I've been in New York City, I've been uh, invested with the CUNY community and um, working at all the different campuses. You'll find many many of us who do graduate studies in New York City are kind of hopping around amongst the different CUNY campuses, um, trying to pull together money and trying to pull together gigs and uh, and teaching opportunities. So- When did you, oh, sorry. You're good. When did you move to New York City? Uh, January 1st, 2015. January 1st, 2015, was that, I mean, obviously that was like a thing, right? January 1st? I mean, it it was just like, a, I got to get out of where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> new year, new you, new state, right? Yeah. Where were you then? Where did you have to get out of? Um, my partner and I had moved um, the previous year from North Carolina out to Seattle. And just to like, we didn't have money to like visit the West Coast. Um, and we were just kind of curious about if we would like it. So we were like, let's just move, see how we feel. And um, it was awful. <laughs> awful or awfully expensive. <laughs> it, it was like a combination of those two things. And like, I'm willing, like I get, New York is expensive too. But like when you pay to live here, there's like, I don't know, culture and like good food and like, stuff that you get out of that um but you move to Seattle and it's like a city run by Amazon and um it was uh not a great experience but one that I'm like grateful to have because I needed to like know for sure that it was the wrong space for me to be in yeah now you've lived on both coasts now and I think you've chosen which coast is your coast right correct very much so it chose me I could say that it shows you. Now, I know, though, that you're not, uh, you're from originally from North Carolina, right? Yeah. Where'd you grow up there in North Carolina? Also on the coast. I'm from Wilmington. So, well, like, my parents' place is like 20 minutes from the ocean. Yeah. So, is, I, I think, you know, I'm from the South, too. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. And so, we can talk about being from displaced Southerners, right? Yeah. And 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 the, way, and the ways that the Midwest is different from the South, right? We can talk about that later. But first, is Wilmington more like, um, I guess it's like a coastal community then? It's not got your like traditional Southern stereotypes, perhaps? I mean, it definitely used to. Now it's got a little more of the, um, a lot of what's happening in the more uh, kind of vacation oriented spaces um, that a lot of 
rich um, Northeasterners are buying up for vacation homes. It's got a, a lot of like gentrification markers growing, growing really rapidly uh, there now. So it's kind of unrecognizable in a lot of ways. But back when I was growing up there, like late 90s, it definitely still had the feelings of like the neighbors, like skinning the deer in the backyard <laughs> and the kind of classic expectations that you have when thinking about like Southern neighbors. But also like my neighborhood was like lower middle class and had like, I, we had black neighbors, we had Latinx neighbors, we had white neighbors who were working class. And like my family's like white middle class. So it was a it was a real mix of people and they're like for the most most part folks got along. So it definitely wasn't I feel like New Yorkers especially have this really stereotypical view of Southerners as being like we're all like white people are like special racists in the South. And like kind of contrary to that, the most like anti black racism especially that I have witnessed or interacted with was like in Seattle. And I've seen a lot of it in New York coming from like really privileged white people in both of those places. So I find it really interesting that there's this kind of um, perspective on the South as being this place that's so backward and kind of out of touch, but then uh, people just um, really have this fantasy version of themselves that they're so <laughs> inclusive and welcoming and it doesn't show up in the ways that they behave to people who are different from them. And in the South, there's like such a rich tree. I mean, you're from Birmingham. There's a yeah. like rich history of activism and that's something I'm really proud of and something I'm, um, I'm very uh, outspoken about when people are ready to talk shit about the South, frankly. Yeah. Heck yeah. I, uh, I moved here. I'm in the Midwest now. So like I mentioned earlier, we are displaced Southerners and I'm right there with you, a champion of the cause. We are not, you know, that. Uh, That is there, certainly, racism. I mean, we're not going to deny that. But but Birmingham, you know, I can't speak to Wilmington, but Birmingham is a vibrant, energized, re-energized city, you know, and and full of different cultures and and different foods. Now, certainly, I'm not going to pretend like it's New York City, right? (laughs) But, But I think you bring up an interesting point for Southerners, and that is that while a lot of outsiders potentially place upon upon us like these racial um, constrictions right to our identities that's just not the case uh, anywhere that I've been I'm gonna pause here and formulate that a little bit better I don't think I can so maybe you can just respond to what I'm saying what I think I'm trying to say is like we're not all racist you know and I think the south is incredible incredibly queer as well you know I think that it's a it, it's a it can be, as you alluded to, a class issue and yeah. not a race issue. Maybe you have some thoughts there. I definitely do. And I something that strikes me all the time is like I've moved to New York and been here for five years and really made a home for myself here. But at the same time, like all my closest friends here, both of my partners, were all from North Carolina. <laughs> or from the south like friends from tennessee friends from alabama um my my press that published my first poetry collection that came out earlier this year they're based in arkansas there's so much cultural richness that comes out of the south and there's so such a um 
I don't know. I feel like we value each other's ability to be the only weird one. I love that. So, so much. I, I like can recognize if like someone else, I'm like, oh, you were like the weird one in your small to medium town. And you were like probably misunderstood and treated like you're the freak by everyone else. And now you get to maybe be recognized by me, who is also a weird one. And I'm like, hey, oh my gosh, we can recognize one another. I can see that from across the street, whatever. And I can at least compliment your clothes or your hairdo or something and find some kinship there. So getting to a, being able to be in a space where we can recognize one another, like being in New York, being in like a big urban space, that's pretty amazing. But also like the resilience that folks have carried out of those spaces, um, especially if they're coming with like multiple marginalized identities, black and brown folks who are like extra marked um, by the racism that is really prevalent in the South and mm -hmm. all over the country. I feel like there's this, uh, this way that we can kind of sniff each other out and, um, and find connection in unexpected ways. And as Southerners, we know those kinds of unexpected things to look for beyond just like a t-shirt that says, gay, come talk to me about it. <laughs> Absolutely, we can. Absolutely. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, I was talking to Lee Hibbard, who's a graduate student at Purdue University, and Lee was talking about, you know, coming out as a trans man and, and while living in Huntsville, Alabama. And it's just this extremely touching story about the community that he found there. And it's really beautiful. And so one of the things that Lee was talking about was like, you shouldn't really comment on those battles until you've had to fight those battles in the South. And I don't identify as queer, but certainly I've been around those battles that have been. Jesse, I want to move into your work a little bit. Uh, I know that you uh, mentioned your book of poetry, and we're going to come back to that in just a little bit. But I want to start off first by focusing on your work in composition and rhetoric at the Graduate Center. Now, I know that you've had a lot of, uh, worn a many hats, I should say, from your time as president of the Institute for Emergence of 21st Century Literacies and things you've been doing with your uh, dissertation uh, committee as well. But your work is situated at the intersection of disability rhetoric and queer rhetorics, as well as like digital composition and critical pedagogy. So I'm wondering, how do all of those things work together in, in your scholarship? Disability rhetoric, queer rhetoric. And, and for the listeners, Jessie has just got this huge smile on her face. And I know it's because she's like, this man is asking me a loaded question that I could talk about for an hour. Well, I'm not going to let you talk for an hour, but I'm going to let you go for a while. Well, the question you're asking is like the question I'm asking in my dissertation. <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, hey, let's get IRB <laughs> approval here and we can move forward with the chat. <laughs> no, and I, I, so I think it's a, I think it's an important question. And one of the big things, um, apologies for the New York ambient noise. So I think that the, the thing that is really motivating to me that has kind of pulled me into all of this is my own struggles with my health and chronic illness. Over the past like six years, I've been dealing with a bunch of undiagnosed symptoms that range from 
um, a lot of neurological issues that affect like my ability to like talk and read and write, um, my memory and other things that I kind of need to do work like I do to like chronic pain that makes um, commuting to teach at various CUNY campuses extremely challenging to being too exhausted to also do the commute to various CUNY campuses. So um, all of a sudden, when my body became this enormous factor in my day-to-day -day life in ways that um, I didn't really have to consider it before, it was very overwhelming to the point where I had to start to reassess the way that I interacted with literally everything in my life. So let's take let's take a concentrated look, if you don't mind here. Yeah. So give me an example, like for someone who is like yourself, who's disabled, right? A disabled scholar. What is the conference going experience like for you? So I know CS has gotten better about things like having different color lanyards for like people can approach you, people should leave you alone, things like that. But there you get into the enormous space. There's not a lot of clear signage for where you need to go. There's nowhere to sit down. There's fluorescent lights. There's people wearing lots of perfume. There's lots of chemical cleaning products that have been used everywhere. You don't know where to go. You are too overwhelmed to ask anyone. <laughs> so before you even get into the space to try to figure out how to register, where your actual presentation is going to be, when it is, where there's food, if there's like a, a quiet room somewhere where you can kind of go and decompress. Before any of that happens, it's already a totally overwhelming environment wherein people who already know each other are connecting. And if you don't know anyone, which if you're disabled and don't go to conferences, you don't, you don't really have a point person to reach out to about anything. I think some people have improved on, on dealing with accessibility requests in professional spaces, but oftentimes when asking for something specific for accessibility reasons, um, there's a lot of like hostility and difficulty getting people to even like listen and be responsive. You um, mean like initial responses to your, to your questions or queries? Yeah, even uh, even before entering the space, before going to the conference, before the conference is like fully planned and developed, asking things like, what's the seating situation like in the registration area? Am I going to have to stand in line for 20 minutes to to wait to register? Um, or will will there be an option for me to like sit down and wait until someone's available to like come help me with that process? Often the answer is, I don't know, or we haven't figured that out yet. And while I understand that there's a process that can be challenging in uh, planning a conference and setting up all the things you need for uh, making an event run smoothly, um, just plugging in accessibility features at the end of event planning, make sure that disabled people, anybody who is trying to communicate their access needs is excluded from the from the beginning of the actual planning. Um, and that's often how things go down. And so that's often how we feel, like an afterthought, like an inconvenience um, that, oh, it only occurred to them at the last minute that we might actually have something specific that we need to be able to survive in this space for long enough to actually 
go to the panel that we're supposed to present on and moderate. So it's very frustrating, it's just exhausting. And usually uh, I get so overstimulated um, that by, like if I don't present the first day and I try to go to things on the first day, I end up having to like sleep the rest of the time. Because I'm so overwhelmed, I like end up getting sick and have to just be horizontal as much as I possibly can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wonder, you know, I, I'm an able-bodied person, and so the struggles that you face and your, your experience, I don't face. I don't say this lightly. I, I often say, you know, I won the intersectional lottery. Like, look at me, you know? Um, and, and so acknowledging that, I think, is important, right, for me and the work that I do. So I wonder, like, as an able-bodied person, uh, acknowledging, you know, the struggles of a disabled scholar, what are the things that we need to be doing, not just in conference planning, but as a field? That's a great question. Um, there's a lot of disabled folks working in CompRet, and I think one of the biggest problems is people kind of don't give a shit about, about disability because I think it's one of a couple of things. Um, there's a lot of discomfort around um, abled people, abled or able-bodied people, like facing um, anything that might remind them of like uh, the fallibility of the body or like their own mortality. Yeah. That's extremely scary for people to deal with. And having to interact with somebody, especially somebody who's like visibly or like physically disabled is really scary to them. And like I use a, a cane most of the time and I don't have like if I weren't using the cane, you wouldn't be able to tell, quote unquote, that I'm disabled. But with the cane, it like demarcates that there's something, quote, wrong with my body. And that right away starts to build this kind of hostility in how people react to me. Um, which is really, really interesting because the second the cane goes away, it's a completely different universe of how anybody interacts with me. And you see that kind of thing all the time. Like um, if anybody's like, especially if your kind of disability is fluid and you need different stuff on different days to help you get around and function. So I think the way that able people are so afraid of their own bodies and we're, we're taught to really have this dualism of like, my mind, this infallible, brilliant thing in my brain, especially as scholars, we're very into this, like, my intellect, but, like, your body is connected to your mind and vice versa. So, like, these two things have this really strong and, and intense relationship to one another. And I think we're very intimidated by starting to acknowledge that experience. I don't know. Scholars tend to get really uncomfortable in dealing with the integration of uh, of body mind of like talking about the needs of the body mind so i think people need to shut up and listen number one thing we need to do right <laughs> like pay disabled scholars in our field to like come to conferences and talk about this stuff um pay for consulting we're talking beyond a standing group right <laughs> Yeah, like um, all this unpaid labor that especially marginalized scholars are asked to do to like, oh, how do we make sure that like black and brown people feel safe at this event? And then black and brown people on the committee are like, let's do these things. And, like that's all uncompensated labor. That's yeah. not appropriate. 
we're doing the same thing to disabled scholars, often many of whom can't work full time and so are excluded from the academy anyway. But we're asking all these people who are on the margins to begin with to do a lot of uncompensated labor to make sure that other people like them can get in the room. But then we're gonna ask the same thing of them and like, who does that leave out? That still leaves out so many people who can't do the uncompensated labor. Yeah. So it just creates the same kind of situation again and again, where it's like, I personally can't take on uncompensated labor right now. And all the time I'm getting requests to like, can you do an accessibility audit for this? Can you come teach this workshop about accessibility? I'm like, you can pay me to do those things. And then yes. maybe I have a busy schedule, we can discuss it. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's work, it's my labor, it's what I study. I am a graduate student, compensate me fairly. For listeners, obviously, you won't be able to see our recording. Jesse is doing the money, money fingers. I don't know how to have money fingers. I don't know what that is. Yeah, money fingers. Money, money fingers. fingers. I think we just, a cultural moment that we just created together. Money fingers. We'll be right back with more from Jesse right after this. Would you like to join Charles on the podcast? The Big Rhetorical Podcast. Emerging Scholar Series is a unique series of podcast episodes specifically designed to highlight the life and career work of graduate students and other academics who enjoy discussing the development of their scholarship, their pedagogy, and their service to the fields and disciplines of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication. The Big Rhetorical Podcast, Emerging Scholar Series, offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a vast catalog of dialogues, a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge-making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Moreover, our Emerging Scholar series serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. For scholars and practitioners, the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar series offers the opportunity to gauge the future of rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication by learning more about the research of graduate students and less seasoned scholars. The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to the community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and strengthening relationships among peers. As we embark upon the newest season of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please feel free to check out older episodes and our newest episodes wherever you get podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Anchor.fm. If you would like to be featured on an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Series, or if you have any questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at our website, www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook. Email us at thebigrhetorical@gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon.
Welcome back. Now, I want to stop you, though. You me- I kept referring to myself as able-bodied. And you mentioned abled versus disabled. Am I using that term wrong? Not necessarily wrong, but is there a better way to use that term? That's a great question. And um, even for disabled people, there's a lot of different terms that folks use to refer to non-disabled people. Um, I use the term able because to me, able-bodied is referring to not physically disabled, um, but able to me is also taking into account like mental illness, um, other like chronic illness that might not affect you like physically, but might have other kinds of uh, impacts on your, the way that you live your life. Um, Because there's disability can be lots of things. It's not just like oh you you use a wheelchair and that's that's the universal symbol of disability. It can be like chronic mental illness. Um, So I like to kind of expand the frame a little bit by using the term able instead of able-bodied. I love that, and I think that justification is very fitting, and it's going to be something that I start working on when I talk about these things for sure. Okay. So we've got the disability nugget here from you, from, from you and your scholarship. And now, but you're working at the intersection of disability and queer rhetorics. A matter of fact, that's how it's listed on your CV, disability and queer rhetorics. So maybe we could sure up the other part of that, the yeah. queer rhetoric side. Yeah, we can try. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, I love that pause because um, there was no question that I asked <laughs> at all. So I guess what I'm sa- what I'm asking uh, in a roundabout way or alluding to is like, what does your work focus on in at that intersection? Yeah, I mean, to me, I, I guess I have a background in um, creative writing, which is... Um, what I did in undergrad and not in, um, and I've always been kind of um, queer and pretty actively like anti-misogyny, but I've never taken like a women's studies, quote unquote. I hate that term so much. I've never, that's never been. Why? Why do you hate that term? Sorry if I'm interrupting your momentum. What is women's studies? Okay. I have no idea what that means. It's fascinating to me. I, one of our certi- certifications, which that's probably the worst freaking word that they could use, right? Certi- I have a certification in women and gender studies. And listeners, Jessie's throwing her arms like, what is that? What is that? So I'm going to let her tell us. I just, I, gender studies, I get a little bit more because gender is a complicated social and cultural thing. And to get a better grasp on how it functions, how we use it, how it shows up in personal identity, but also in social interaction is, is hard and interesting. Women's studies means cis white women's studies, pretty much always. Who wants to study that? I don't know. I find it gross, frankly. I mean, it's, it's, it's transphobic and... I don't understand its function in in the 21st century. That's just my personal take on it. So like that's a kind of my approach to like queer rhetorics is very much um, uh, an intentional disinterest in any kind of framing of like oh like um like a like gender and language is this 
women do this with language. Queer people like this language. It's like an intentional complication of the kind of framings that we have about people with these kinds of genders do language and do rhetoric in these kinds of ways. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. I think that the way it shows up online and in digital forms is a lot more complicated than that. And that's really interesting to me, how people do like gender and embodiment in communication that they make online. Is that somewhere, is that somewhere your, your research is going? Yeah. I totally just cut you off. I thought you were done talking. I'm sorry. No, no, it's okay. I mean, I was just going to say like in, in like alphabetic text, like written stuff and in like making images, making memes, making other forms of like digital meaning, making, making digital text. The list of scholars that I'm writing down throughout this conversation to mention to you afterwards is growing very, very long. So I'm excited about that. I hope that you are too. Awesome. Uh, so you're, you mentioned that you're interested in, um, well, identity and digital spaces. That's, that's what it sounds like you're interested in digital rhetorics in that way. So I wonder, do you have, I know that, you know, uh, you've still got plenty of time for this dissertation and I hate to be that. What have you done for me lately? You know, scholar, but I wonder like, what is your dissertation project? Do you have a, like a framework or a, an idea maybe you could share with us? Yeah, I'm not going to say too much because it's sure. um, it's a really good idea and I don't want anybody out there, you know. I love it. I love that. To it. There's going to be uh, interactive digital components. There's going to be more kind of prosy components. What does that mean? Like a essayistic first person oh, okay. component. Gotcha. Prose, prosy. I'm, yeah. Prose. I know that word. <laughs> <laughs> you can imagine a little hyphen and a little Y, you got it. And um, and less of an interest in creating a kind of standardized academic long paper about what other people have said and what I think about it. Is it going to be a born digital production? Do you think? Partially, but not fully. It's going to be. It's going to be. It's going to end up being a multimedia project. Very cool. Uh, I've actually talked to a couple of scholars recently that are that are doing that, that are mixing cool. methods, mixing media. Um, and I, I love that because it kind of fits with and I hope that it's OK if I say this. It seems like you have a unique way of pushing back, not just against the academy, but like against specific fields in the academy. So rarely do you find someone that can really do that, you know, that can really push back against the institution and then also push back against the field within the, this, the institution. I think that's fascinating. So I love that you're also pushing back against the genre of the dissertation, right? It's big theme in your life, I think, in the work you're doing. And I absolutely love it. You mentioned earlier that you are a creative writer. And when you mentioned that, the first thing that went through my head was, oh, shit, I don't know anything about creative writing. Uh, and that's true. I don't. But uh, you do have a book of poetry out now. What's the what's the title of that book? It's called The Uninhabitable. Okay. And, you know, I, I really I'm not going to ask what it's about because my response will be 
interesting. And we're not supposed to say, that's the one thing I know about creative writing, is don't tell someone their work is just interesting. So I will pose the question in a different way, and I won't provide a follow-up. What might a reader expect who wants to seek out your book of poetry, The Uninhabitable? It's actually a lot about stuff that uh, that we've talked about. Um, it's a lot about, I wrote it um, kind of in a, a compressed time period. Much of it was during when I was first dealing with, um, with my chronic illnesses and when my body was really transitioning into from a like healthy young person. I waited tables for 10 years. That was, I was planning for that to kind of be my career, that and like bartending, which I loved and uh, was really into in a lot of ways. Um, And really I just got too sick to continue doing it. And all of a sudden I just could no longer go to work. Um, And so much of this book was written right at that time. I like started grad school right then and just had to get a lot out because I was going through all of these emotions and couldn't really feel all of them. It was too overwhelming to feel them all. So I had to find a way to just communicate them. Um, So they ended up coming out in like short little bursts and taking the form of this book. And I love the book. It feels so far away now, even though it just came out this year, it feels like a lifetime ago that the poems actually were created but um it's definitely a kind of sad book but i oh. think there are little moments of like a uh, tenacity that i really can look back on and be like i'm so tough go me <laughs> which is an yeah. awesome an awesome little moment yeah uh, we'll have to tweet out a link so some of our listeners can check that out. I already know a couple of our listeners that will be extremely interested. Jesse, you, I mentioned earlier that you wear a ton of hats there working with at the Graduate Center. And uh, upcoming in the spring, you have a conference. Um, and it's devoted to access, right? I can't remember the name of that conference. Perhaps you could share that with us and tell us a little bit about what uh, what we can expect from that. It's called access is not a metaphor. It's also act. It's also about access and accessibility. So you intentionally. Yeah. And that was your call. Yep. I'm one of the the co-chairs of the conference. So yes. And so that's going to be in 2020. Yeah. In March, 2020 at the graduate center and the, we'll be releasing the CFP soon. So you can follow me on Twitter uh and I'll tell I'll yell at people when it's out. You know what? I don't I don't want to presume anything, but um perhaps you might join us for another episode for our conference and event promotions later on next semester if you have the time. That would be fun. I would love that. Um well, we've walked through the things I wanted to talk about. What else do you want to talk about, Jesse? I got to yell about um inaccessibility at conferences and that is like a big one for me. Yes. What like I I apologize for this metaphor, but like I softballed that up to you and you knocked it out of the park. It was beautiful. I like walk around thinking about it all day long and I'm like making lists in my head all the time of like, well, they fucked this up and this and this and you fucked that up and this was terrible and I know that they're going to fuck that up. 
so <laughs> I'm always <laughs> Oh, well, I'm so glad you got to talk about that. Is, is there anything else you want to talk about? And if not, that's okay. I kind of think those were the big ones. Okay, cool. Well, I want to thank you for being on with me today. And um, Jesse, have a great afternoon. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Would you like to be a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast? We offer participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our discipline and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a vast catalog of dialogues, a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making in rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Moreover, the Big Rhetorical Podcast serves as a glimpse into the variety of positionalities and personalities currently working in and defining these areas, as well as a way to track specific disciplinary themes as they manifest throughout time. For scholars and practitioners, the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholars series offers the opportunity to gauge the future of rhetoric, writing studies, and tech comp by learning more about the research of graduate students and less seasoned scholars. The Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholars series core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project with an emphasis on inclusivity in localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. If you'd like to be featured on an episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at, the, at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, or you can reach out to us via email, thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter, at the Big Red, and follow the podcast on Facebook. You can get the Big Rhetorical Podcast wherever you get podcasts. Finally, don't forget to buy some merch. You can head over to our Cafe Press store, www.cafepress.com slash tbrpodmerch. That's cafepress.com slash tbrpodmerch. Pick up a coffee cup or a t-shirt. Make sure you do that. We're hitting the road soon. We'll be at ATTW. We'll be at C's, and we hope to see you there. Until next time, rhetorical listeners, be kind to one another and always be listening rhetorically.